भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येक्षजत्रा स्थिरंगुष्टवागुंसनु व्यशेम देवितयदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्तिना पूषा विश्ववेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्षोरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओ शांतिशातिशातिर ऑन दी थर्ड वर्स आई थिंक Twenty fourth verse. We have done the twenty third. We have done twenty third. All right. So we will do the twenty fourth verse um, of the second chapter. If you remember, the teaching of the Upanishad was that um, one consciousness alone, in which appears our daily round of experiences of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. So in the waking, we are the waker, and we have a world. the waker's world both of them are appearances in one consciousness contrary to what we think that we are this waking person and there is a world outside rather both of us i the waker and my world both are appearances in the consciousness which i actually am so also the dream experience and so also the blankness of deep sleep experience so the conclusion of the upanishad is that consciousness alone which the upanishad calls the fourth the mandukya upanishad it calls that consciousness the fourth fourth with respect to waker dreamer deep sleeper 1 2 3 with respect to them the fourth is this consciousness but really if you if we insist that that consciousness alone is the reality and the first 1 2 3 are appearances in that reality then really what the upanishad is saying is that consciousness alone is real and the other pairs the three pairs waker and waker's world dreamer and dream world deep sleep and the deep sleep uh, potential world or or the deep sleep world let us say world within quotes all three pairs are appearances in that consciousness this is the meaning you know, in vedanta when you say ब्रह्म सत्यम जगत मिथ्या जीव ब्रह्मीवनापरा and you the sentient being you are that thurium so this is what is being said here now if you are saying that the world we experience is an appearance especially this world which we live in it's not a reality in itself it's a big claim it's a, it's a central claim of advaita vedanta that this is this is not an objective reality in itself though it appears to be so this thing has to be really substantiated what do you mean how is it not an ob- we understand that the dream is not an objective reality we all understand that it's something that we imagine in our minds but this world seems to be really real so the whole second chapter 
It's called the chapter on unreality. Not that the chapter is unreal. The, it's, it is on unreality. Vaitatya Prakarana. The section on unreality. Vaitatya is, is a very, very interesting word. It's a very gentle word. Vitatha means not so. So what we think it is so, the Vedanta is telling us it's not so. Not quite so. Now instead of saying that the Upanishad says it, Gaurapada, he is now trying to justify it on the basis of reason, on the basis of reasoning. What do you mean that this is not so? This is not, not real, not an objective reality. And can you give reasons for it? And he does that. And you remember how he has done it. What he has done is first he takes up the dream experiences. Where we are all convinced, we all know that, we accept it. That it's not an objective reality. We know that when we wake up, what we dreamt, the places, the people, the things which happened, we immediately say, oh, it was a dream. Note one thing. We do not deny that we dreamt it, but we confirm that it was a dream, meaning that it was not, it's not real, it's not to be counted along with waking. So the example I give, I had a cookie and I liked it very much, so I dreamt I had three more cookies. And when I wake up, I don't say I have eaten four cookies. I said that I have eaten one and I dreamt that I had eaten three more. So the three dream cookies are not to be counted, thankfully, along with the waking cookie. Which means those three are not objective realities, not to be counted. Though I experienced them, the, though, though it was um, a kind of uh, an experience, I, I saw it. Come, come. Now note that the experiences which are peculiar to a state can be taken as relatively real in that state. It's not a straight, uh, straightforward thing of true and false, but rather you can say um, absolute truth, truth and relative truth or higher truth and lower truth. The things which happened in the dream, as long as the dream lasted, they seemed real. It's only with respect to the waking state that the things in the dream are said to be unreal. Similarly also, it's important to note that when Vedanta speaks about uh, the unreality of the waking world, it is not within the waking world that the, this, this thing is said to be unreal. It is unreal with respect to, to the absolute, to Turiyam, to pure consciousness. From that point of view, it's not an independent objective reality. These are manifestations of that reality. So, as far as the waking world goes, within it, things are valid. If you feel hungry, then you say that um, I, it used to be that if I ate, I would be okay. But now after Vedanta, I don't know if the food will satisfy my hunger because it's all false. No, it's, uh, it's true, in, in the, it's empirically true. The Sanskrit is Vyavaharika Satyam, empirical truth. So, it will work at that level of experience. Hunger in the dream will be satisfied by food in the dream. Hunger in the waking world will be satisfied by food in the waking world. And all transactions in the waking world are still valid. So, uh, if you have a body in the waking world, you need to feed it. Otherwise, it will suffer. Yes. In ultimate analysis, any harm is done? No. But practically, temporarily, transactionally, harm is done. So, if you don't feed the 
body in the waking state, it will starve. If you don't give medicine, you'll get sick and so and so forth. And therefore, the rules of morality, for example, in the waking world, uh, religion, in the waking world, all of them have to be observed. Otherwise, law of karma in the waking world, it will apply. Within the waking world, causality will apply. But not across the states. Not, not to Turiyam. Alright. Then what is the point of this knowledge? The point of this knowledge is it sets me free from the limitations which I have by ignorance imposed upon myself. Vedanta claims my suffering is mainly due to taking this body and mind to be real and identifying myself, limiting myself to this body and mind and that I am not anything else. I am apart from the, uh, everything else. I am born with the birth of this body. I age with the aging of this body and I will die with the death of this body. This is the source of suffering. Old age, disease, death, um, unhappiness in worldly relationships, all of them, these are sources of suffering. All of them, if you think, we transcend actually. If you realize that you are the, if you realize you are the Turiyam, the, the consciousness in which they are appearing. So it's not an objective reality, what we are experiencing out there. In really, really speaking, it is you, the consciousness, who is appearing as experiencer and experienced. The subject and object here. The real subject is the one who is appearing as the empirical subject and the empirical object. I was reading, I keep on mentioning to you the so-called hard problem of consciousness. But I also read a couple of days back, a philosopher recently, Galen Strawson in, uh, in, uh, in Texas, University of Texas in Austin. He has written an article called, he's saying, what he calls the hard problem of matter. Not hard problem of consciousness. He says, we know what consciousness is. He goes one step further. He says, actually we know what consciousness is. There is no hard problem of consciousness. Why, is, why are you calling it a hard problem? Because you have made up your mind that it is a material world and in the material world, this is the material body, in the material body is a material brain and that brain of flesh and blood is somehow producing any material consciousness and we don't understand how the brain can produce consciousness and you're calling it hard problem of consciousness. But at all, whether there is a material world out there, how do you know that? And he's asking that question. He said, it seems to be crazy to ask such a question, but he says, no. He says, actually, if you understand what physics, modern particle physics is telling us, we know less and less about what matter is. We know a lot about how matter behaves and interacts. That's what he pointed out. We know about the structure of matter, we know about the behavior of matter, we know about the interaction of matter, but what is it exactly? Over the last hundred years, it has basically disappeared before our eyes. We at least were certain there's something called atom and molecules. Then it became subatomic uh, particles, you know, nucleus and the electrons. Then the nucleus became smaller with, with uh, neutrons and protons. And that became smaller with uh, quarks of various kinds, uh, bosons. Uh, now they have discovered bosons. And so many, they call it a zoo of sub-nucleus sub particles. Zoo, so many. They have to classify now different types of uh, subnuclear uh, particles. Um, 
one nuclear particle physicist said, if I knew this was going to be the result of our investigations, I would have become a biologist. You know, classify, you have species and <laughs> like that, that we'll have an entire range of things to classify finally. So it's going further and further down, we don't know what matter itself is. He calls it the hard problem of matter. This is not, consciousness is not a problem. We know what consciousness is because we are conscious. We are conscious, this is fundamental and this consciousness reveals matter to us. The question is, what is matter? So anyway, Vedanta would be very happy with this, this kind, this is the direction the argument is taking now. I was sort of half joking to somebody that if you put together these two concepts, David Chalmers' concept of hard problem of consciousness and uh, Galen Strawson's concept of the hard problem, so-called hard problem of matter, if you put them together, you have more or less got Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> Uh, that uh, consciousness is irreducible and matter is not really matter, what we think it is to. In that case, we have got Advaita Vedanta basically. And so I should pack up and go back to the Himalayas. <laughs> um, so once, we, once I realize that what the, the, the argument that Gaudapada has given in the second chapter, what is the argument that he gives? Why do you show it to me? Philosophically, give me, logically, why would you say that the world is not real? Um, so the argument, remember, he gave two strong um, arguments. One is the argument from objectivity. He had the gall to say that if it's an object, it must be false. Our paradigm today is, we, we say, you know, objective truth, be objective. In Advaita Vedanta, be objective is a dirty word. The moment you are objective, it's false already. Why is it false? We know. Because the object is an object to some consciousness. It depends on consciousness for its, for, for its revelation. How do you know that that object has any kind of validity, even existence, apart from consciousness? So that's basically his argument. That um, an object is something revealed in consciousness. It has no self evident justification for uh, for its reality um, so if so that's the uh, that's the hammer he uses to knock all our theories that um, anything in the waking world it's all real because I see it you see it is it an object to your or to, to you yes then it's false I say it's real because I saw it he said it's false because you saw it because it's an object <laughs> It's an appearance to your consciousness. If all, so whatever we experience in waking, dreaming and deep sleep, they're all objects. What we experience through our sense organs in waking state, they are what are called gross objects or physical objects. What we experience through our mind in our dreams are called subtle objects. Remember, subtle only with respect to our waking uh, awareness. Because in waking state we know Oh, those things, people and places I saw in my dream, they were all in my mind. So they are constructed of my mind. But subtle objects. And what I experience in deep sleep, the blankness, that is what you might call a causal object. But they are all objects and hence they are appearances. And knowing this, I am free of those objects and also free of the suffering they cause. This is reading a verse from Ashtavakra. It never fails to shock you. 
it says that those who see Brahman, those who see Brahman may keep on contemplating I am Brahman, but the one who sees no second at all, what should he contemplate? See, even if you think Brahman is somehow a tinge of objectivity is present there, that's not a realization. The pure subject and there is no second to it. So there is, it is beyond any kind of that I have to think about this, I have to meditate on this or I have to hold on to this identity. Any kind of mental or intellectual action that is not even necessary. So this is called the Sahaja state, the, the natural state of enlightenment, Sahaja. Um, so if all objects are appearances, then what is the truth? What is the truth then? What is real? The subject must be real. The observer must be the, the, the real subject, the pure subject. The observer, the witness, the sakshi, the experiencer in itself must be the reality. Isn't that so? Uh, in Upanishad it says, Ekatma Pratyasaram. The one, one eye consciousness, you the consciousness, who are unmistakably present in all your experiences. It's a truism. In all your experiences, you must be present. What else is present? So, in the waking, you are there. In your dream experiences, you are there. In your dream, deep sleep experience, you are there. That one, like a golden thread running through these experiences and free of them. And yet, the support of all those experiences, that is the truth. The observer, the witness, the consciousness, the sakshi, that one is the truth. Now, from the 20th verse onwards, Gauravada takes up a list of different philosophical views which were prevalent during his time about what is real, different views. And he rejects all of them. He quickly touches them, sort of enumerates them from 20th verse to 28th verse. And I counted how many views does he take up? How many philosophers? So he takes up 35, 35, 35 different views and he quickly touches upon them and dismisses them and moves ahead. With what, what argument does he dismiss them? The same argument. You are putting some object as the reality. But being an object, it can't be true. Even he takes up God. If you think you are Shiva, Durga, Kali, Vishnu, there is a separate God out there somewhere, then by my, the same logic I reject that. It might be, but it would still be a relative truth then. It would still be an empirical truth. There is an ultimate truth beyond that, which is the, the witness consciousness. So he rejects any kind of attempt to put any object as the truth. Somebody says matter. Somebody says the sense objects. Somebody says, we, we read so many of them. Somebody says uh, um, the, um, a, a personal God apart from you, the dualistic idea. Um, somebody says the different worlds, so that will come again. So th those, those things he rejects one after another. And he just gives the name of these um, if he gave the name also, it would have been easy. He just uses an indicatory word for each of them. And so it's difficult to find out. Remember what he's, he's writing 1400 years ago. So many of these schools uh, have either disappeared or changed. Uh, 
uh, over time so that uh, they, it's difficult to identify what he's talking about. And unfortunately for us, at this particular moment, the commentator, Shankaracharya, also falls silent. He doesn't say anything about these verses. Verses 20 to 28, in the commentary of Shankaracharya, he does not explain. Luckily, we have sub-commentators who wrote centuries after Shankaracharya, Anandagiri, who faithfully commented on Shankaracharya's commentary. So, this is the Upanishad and the explanation written by Gaudapada in the Karika and the commentary on the Karika by Shankaracharya and the sub-commentary on the commentary by Anandagiri. So, Anandagiri, he um, explains what these schools could have been. Again, remember, it also must have been some kind of conjecture on his part because he came maybe a, a half a millennia after Gaudapada. So, I think so at least. So, centuries after, afterwards at least. So, uh, but but he's very helpful. And so, th there are these books I just wanted to show you. So, this book for example has the Upanishad and Shankaracharya's commentary and Anandagiri's commentary and a Hindi translation and also short helpful notes on the terms used by Anandagiri here. So, these are published by Kailash Ashram. You know, the school where Abhedanandaji studied uh, in the Himalayas, in, in Rishikesh, it's there, Kailasha. This is in Kankhal. No, Rishikesh, sorry, it's in Rishikesh. So, Dhanraj Giri and others, so they established. The, before that also the monks used to study, but informally. They would stay, say, in the huts and they would gather around a teacher and study. But then it became a school about 150 years ago. And, uh, I mean, a formal school with a building and everything. So now they publish the books also. So here you see. And they have these pictures of the, their masters who taught them. So you have like Shankaracharya, like a sun in between, and the rays coming out as the different Mahamandalishwats, the teachers of that school. Anyway, uh, Anandagiri is very helpful. So it's mostly based on what he said that I'm sort of uh, saying this means this school, this, that means that school. Now we had done. Verse number 24, 23, 24, some more of these philosophers. Kala iti kala vidu, kala iti kala vidu, disha iti cha tadvidaham, disha iti cha tadvidaham, vada iti vada vidu, vada iti vada vidu, Bhuvanani ti tadvidaha, Bhuvanani ti tadvidaha. So, what are these schools? Number one, the calculators of time, astrologers. Again, it's here that Anandagiri helps us. He says, Gaudapada just says the knowers of time. But who are the knowers of time? What does he mean? Whom is he talking about? So, we open Anandagiri's text, he says, um, Jyotisha, the, those who are astrologers. So these, uh, the astro calculators of time call it time, call what time? Reality. According to them, what is real? Time is real. You know what Gaudapada will say. Is it an objective reality? And they will be eager to claim, yes, 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 it's objective. Good, then it's false. <laughs> Disha iti tadvidaha, the knowers of the directions consider them real. 
the dabblers in theories ex accept them to be so, the different theories, and the knowers of the universe, the 14 worlds, consider them to be, to be real. So what are these schools? First is the astrologers. So this is a big thing, I think all over the world, but especially in India. It's a big thing. Uh, astro astrology is actually, it's born of a Vedic science. Um, the Vedas themselves said what are, what are called six auxiliary sciences. So in ancient uh, India, the scriptures, the Vedas, there are four Vedas plus six auxiliary sciences. You find an enumeration in the, um, in the Mundaka Upanishad. When the student goes to the teacher and asks, what is that, sir, by knowing which everything can be known? And the teacher answers. Before answering, we know the answer. By knowing Brahman, everything can be known because you've been doing Vedanta a long time. <laughs> but uh, instead of saying that directly, the teacher says, there are two kinds of things to be known. Um, one is the lower knowledge and the other is the higher knowledge. The relative knowledge and the transcendent knowledge. Dve vidye veditavye itihasmayad brahma vidovadanti parajaiva paracha This is the original Sanskrit. It says, two kinds of knowledge are there to be known. So say the knowers of Brahman, Brahmavida. So the knowers of Brahman, they say there are two kinds of knowledge to be known. The transcendent knowledge and the relative knowledge, para and apara. What is the relative knowledge? Tatra para Rigveda, Yajurveda, Samaveda, Atharvaveda, Shiksha Kalpa Vyakaranam Niruktam, Chando Jyotishamiti. So the relative knowledge, the lower knowledge, he gives the entire university syllabus, whatever is available at that time. So he says the Rigveda, the Samaveda, the Yajurveda, the Atharvaveda. So these are the well known four Vedas. But then he adds to it six more. Shiksha Kalpa Vyakaranam Niruktam Chando Jyotishamiti. Shiksha is the, the, the science of Vedic pronunciation, how to utter the Vedic mantras. Vyakarana grammar is the Vedic grammar. It's a little different from the modern Sanskrit grammar. By modern again I mean Paninian grammar which is 3000 years old. But Vedic grammar is even older. So, um, Shiksha Vyakaranam. Kalpa, it is the instructions how to perform the Vedic rituals. Um, then Jyotisha, so that is the one, there is a science in which time was calculated with, with the knowledge of astronomy. Why was time important? In a ritualistic context, time was important because the time when the sacrifices were to be offered, the time as the, the duration of the ritual, so all these had to be calculated precisely. That's how they developed a sense of the stars and the movement of stars and time. Very precise measurement of time. But later on that science itself became an independent, what you call today spin-off, technology spin-off. And it was a very successful spin-off. Because uh, till today, the, um, astrology is something very popular throughout the world. Often Vedanta is not at all as popular as, <laughs> as astrology. People are more interested in, in astrology. And uh, uh, I mean, rural folk in India, they often expect <coughs> monks to know how to read, read hands, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, Swami 
Smaranananda Ji, who is our, our president now, when he was a young monk many, many decades ago. So he tells the story how he was on a train and this elderly gentleman, a rustic farmer, came up to him in the train and saw a monk. So he asked the Swami, read my hand, tell my fortune. And the Swami said, I don't know. And he was uh, outraged, that, uh, that man, he was outraged. He said, um, what kind of monk are you? What do you know then? What do you do? What do you do? He said, we run schools and hospitals and you know, the thing, the work that our order does in India, schools and hospitals and you know, colleges. And this person says in Hindi, rustic Hindi, those who know Hindi will appreciate the, the accent. He says, Sakul chalata hai, kaisa mahatma hai? <laughs> it's a very rustic way of saying, you run schools, what kind of a sadhu are you? What kind of a monk? And then he says, who's going to feed you? Kaun Why should anybody give you food if you can't read their hands? <laughs> and the Swami said, I felt very small, you know, like uh, really worthless. I can't read, read your hand. Um, but the whole point is read my hand and tell my fortune. And they're not particularly interested in your Vedanta. They're more interested in how, uh, what's going to happen to me. Another monk I remember, very nice, a great Vedanta scholar also, and good, very, very, um, what you might call a Vairagya one, very dispassionate monk, who wandered all over India without um, any money, you know, like, just depending on God. So he told me once on his way to Vrindavan, he was going from Mathura to Vrindavan, always by foot. So he's going, and then somebody gave him some food, and then asked, number bit bata diji, tell me a number. So what does it mean? It's a, it's a sort of thing in some, some parts of India. They play the lottery and they will ask a holy man, tell me a number because if the, the belief is that the holy man says it and you have some such number and you're going to win the lottery and be rich. So this uh, Swami, he said, all right, wait here. I'm just going to Rindavan, which is just a few kilometers ahead, just a little ahead. On the way back, I'll tell you. So that man who was there, he said, okay, I'll, I'll wait here. He said, okay, wait. If you're here on the way, when I'm on the way back, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. So I said, what did you do? Because he's waiting on the way, road. He said, I went to Vrindavan and stayed there for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> That's the advantage of being a monk. You can, you can go anywhere and stay any, anywhere as long as you want. And then you can leave at any time you want also. Anyhow, why did this come up? Astrology. So it's a really big thing. Really big thing. And if you say what is more popular, astrology is much more popular than any Vedanta, any, any religion or anything like that. Astrology, you will immediately have people following you around if you're a good astrologer. Vedanta teaches you're a dime a dozen. It doesn't really matter. Who cares about metaphysics? After the class, I won't tell you now, I have a really nice and funny story about astrologers. My encounter with a group of astrologers in India. But... I don't want it to be recorded, so <laughs> they might feel hurt, you know. So, um, after the class, you remind me, I'll tell you. So, this is a school of, of um, thought. Oh, so, um, uh, Nirukta. Huh. Nirukta is the Vedic dictionary. Dictionary. The dictionary of Vedic terms. Remember, there were scholars who memorized the whole thing. 
So thousands of terms. Nirukta. All of these six were used to were useful for studying the Vedas. So that is why they are called auxiliaries or Vedanga. The limbs of the Veda. Nirukta. And then the next one is Chanda. Chanda is Vedic um, rhyme or Vedic meter. You know how the Vedic hymns are composed. Yeah, that makes six, right? Shiksha, Kalpa, Vyakarana, Nirukta, Chando, Jyotisha. Yeah, six. And he says all of this knowledge is secondary knowledge, lower knowledge, relative knowledge. Then you might be wondering, you should ask, what was the higher knowledge then? That's what we are reading here. But he says, no, no, no. Even this which you are reading is part of the Vedas, right? This is part, this is Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Then what is the higher knowledge? A Vedic, Vedic rhyme, a Vedic meter, they call it meter, M-E-T-R-E. Basically the, the technology behind Vedic poetry, <coughs> chandas. Nobody is still curious about what is the higher, higher knowledge. So this is what we are reading. No, actually precisely not, not quite this. What he says next is, Parayayatadaksharamadhigamyate. The transcendent knowledge is that by which the, the akshara, that means the ultimate reality, is realized. So precisely what he means by that higher knowledge is not even the text of the Upanishad. It means realization itself. It means realization itself, Brahma Jnana. That flash of intuition, that moment for which we are doing all of this. You make the breakthrough that I am Brahman, that knowledge. That is the higher knowledge which is meant by uh, Paravidya, the transcendent knowledge. Of course, the Upanishads embody that higher knowledge. They point towards that. So in that sense, this is, in a secondary sense, you can call it the Paravidya. All right. Time. So time also, if it's an objective reality outside, um, it is not, it cannot be the ultimate reality. Then there is also another group which considered the directions, not space itself, but the directions, um, north, east, west. So in Hinduism, in ritualistic worship in Hinduism, the directions, there is an auspicious direction, there are directions to, there are di- directions to be worshipped. So in Hindu rituals, for example, there are names for each of the directions. North, East, West, South, then Northeast, Northwest, North, um, um, uh, Southwest, like that. Up, down, and there are offerings made to the directions. And there are people who want to know which direction it is auspicious. And there's a whole science called Vastu, which is again very popular. Mm-hmm. And it has taken an, another spin-off, <laughs> so, which has got a life of its own. Very popular. So that considers which direction might be auspicious. So if the setting of your house, where should the door be and the windows be, where should the water be kept, where should be uh, the bedroom and the worship room, all these. And there is a whole thing underlying temple construction. Huge uh, amount of study has been done. And part of that is which direction should it face, the deity, which direction should the worship be done, which, what is the placement of the different... Um, structures in the temple. Um, so directions and directions are really important. Some people specialize in that and they give it central importance. So that's a point of view. And is it an objective thing? Yes. Then it cannot be the ultimate reality. That's what God of Remember, 
he is not criticizing these, these sciences, he is not criticizing these beliefs also. He is just saying that not the ultimate reality. And he has a reason for that. He says because they are object, they are, they are objects and that object is always dependent on the, on the consciousness into which the object appears. It cannot be the ultimate reality. The, the, two, the two arguments of Gaurapada, object and no, object is borrowed existence and, and, and anityam, the, the, the transient, impermanent. If anything is an object, if anything is impermanent, it cannot be the ultimate reality. There is something underneath it, something which is more fundamental. And what is fundamental is you, the permanent subject, uh, the Turiya. Then another group, Vada iti Vada Vida. So different points of view. There are people who specialize in theories and points of view, ideologies you call them today. And they become the reality for these people. They can give up anything but not their point of view. So the point of view, the ideology is, uh, you know, today we have capitalism and socialism and the Marxist point of view and the leftist point of view, liberal point of view, the conservative point of view. This becomes the reality for them. But they are all, again, they are objects to the consciousness which is free of them, which, which actually lends them existence. Ideologies are so powerful. People can fight and die for them. And they have been. People, for, a, for a time being, people were fighting and dying even now for religion and in the 20th century onwards for secular ideologies like communism and Marxism and things like that. So they fight about it. I remember uh, just day before yesterday, uh, was it yesterday? Day before yesterday, I was uh, at a lecture. There's, a, there's an auditorium called a Skirball Auditorium. Yes. A Skirball. Um, and just by chance, I got to go there. Uh, I heard Zizek was lecturing there. Slavoj Zizek is, is a superstar in, in uh, um, philosophy today, in continental philosophy. He is, if you look him up, well, don't. <laughs> he is enough to drive you mad. Um, and he has got the most extraordinary mannerisms I've ever seen <laughs> when he speaks. That makes, I think that's part of half of his appeal probably. And he is, he, he will shock you just in just about every sentence. And he wants you. Now I'm going to say something horrible. <laughs> so he's a Hegelian, Marxist, post-Lacanian, Freudian, something, something, something. <laughs> And he's a superstar. If, if you Google him, uh, I, I went to the, uh, there, there are, uh, I, I mean, to hear him speak, one hour talk, one hour question answers. Um, there were, uh, I think, 500, 600 people. And almost all of them youngsters. Uh, almost all of them had long hair and a little unkempt and backpacks. The students from NYU are nearby. And... All were very well read in something or the other. And they, would, they were eager to argue with abstract points of Lacan and, and, uh, and uh, Hegel and Marx. And the subject of the uh, talk was on your Marx. <laughs> so everything is put in such a way which is provocative and interesting. Um, 
And once in a while he will say, but to come back to the topic, which in two hours he never did. <laughs> um, but people are so passionate. They're so passionate. Um, they went forward to ask questions. And one guy was student. He was asking questions and he wouldn't stop. Until the organizer came and told him to give others a chance. I was behind him. I never got a chance to ask a question because so he wouldn't stop. And when they said, let others speak, he said, he said call the cops. I will not stop. I think your, um, the questioners here are so polite. <laughs> there he will not let go of the mic. Uh, so like that. But so passionate. Uh, you might say, does it faintly remind you of when you were 19 or 20? <laughs> so it's good to be passionate about some intellectual cause when you're a teenager like that. But also good to grow out of it. Gaurapada wants you to grow out of it. <laughs> not to stop being idealistic, but being idealistic in a more mature way. Um, I think many of the questionnaires were more, more interested in showing how much they had read rather than asking a question. And it's, 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 it's kind of cute, you know, when you see that in a young person. <laughs> I think the philosopher also liked it. So he's, uh, one, one questioner said, I'm not sure I understand what's going on here, but, and then, then uh, Zizek, he, he's, uh, he's Slovenian, I think, or Hungarian. Uh, he laughed and he said, it is good you say that, because most people don't understand what I say or what they say also. <laughs> one, not relevant, but one, one thing he said. See, this is the way he operates. He said, in a heavy Eastern European accent, so he says, religion is opium of the people that is old. Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. O opium of the people, opium of the people that is old, gone. Now there are two things which are new, opium of the people. What are the two things? He said opium and the people. <laughs> <laughs> opium means, he said, I can say this crowd, especially this crowd who is gathered here, most of you are using or you have used <laughs> either at least antidepressants or something mild, something prescribed or also hard drugs or both. And it's a widespread thing for the first time in history, he says, large numbers of people uh, all over the world are medicating themselves using drugs of some sort or other. Sometimes out of necessity or whatever, but it's a fact for the first time. So this is a good point. And then the second thing he said, the people themselves are uh, also, uh, what he meant by that, there are, there's the rise of politicians across the world who are populist, who promise to people um, whatever they, their, you know, their worst passions are, I, I will fulfill it for you. Uh, and they rise to power in that way. So, so, but the way he put it, you see, these are well-known facts, but the way he put it, opium of the people, and he said opium and the people, these two are the problems right now, not religion, he said. Anyhow. Vada iti vada vidaha. Points of view. Philosophies. And there are people who can... Or a precise word is ideology. Ideologies. And this becomes the reality to many people. By the way, which I said right now, that these are what is, what, what is our ideologies now. This is obviously not what Anandagiri meant. He meant something different. His commentary says, by vada he means various... Um, I'll give you the exa examples he gives. What today you might call the whole range of fanciful new age ideas. All meant for the same thing. Better health, better relationships, more money, things like that. 
So he says some prescribe, he says some prescribe stones, some prescribe, uh, uh, nowadays a lot of things. I went to a conference once in which the whole conference was about these things. A to Z, all crazy ideas. I mean, some of it might be have some truth in it, but crystals and light therapy and aroma and this and that and a whole range of things. All of them meant for curing your disease or giving you money or getting better relationships. Um, Swami Vivekananda, when he was here, he was subjected to treatment by somebody's magnet treatment for, for some pain, chronic pain he had. Some of it may actually work. But anyhow, the problem is people make it their, their philosophy of life. That's what I'm all about. Everything is that only. So that's what he's against. Vada iti vada vida. Various kinds of um, ideologies or certain cures or things like that. Then bhuvanani iti tadvidaha. Or the cosmos in those days. 14 worlds were considered to be the cosmos. The, the ancient Indian idea of the universe was there are 14 planes of existence. This universe, physical universe, is one of them. Um, today, you have an interlocking system of multiple universes. So, they said 14 universes. Bhur, Bhuva, Swa, Mahar, Jana, Tapa, seven heavens, and then the seven, seven hells, nasty and nastier and nastiest. So, things like that. And people consider that to be the ultimate reality. But all of them are rejected. Why? Same logic. It's an experience in your awareness. Comes and disappears in your awareness. It cannot be the ultimate reality. The your awareness, you the awareness, are the ultimate reality. 25. But do remember the astrologer story. <laughs> Remind me, I'll tell you. Mana iti mano vida. Mana iti mano vida. Buddhiriti cha tadvidaha, buddhiriti cha tadvidaha, chittam iti chitta vido, chittam iti chitta vido, dharma dharma cha tadvidaha, dharma dharma cha Three schools are mentioned, uh, one, two, three, four, four schools are mentioned here. Um, one is a sophisticated kind of materialist who said we are actually mind. Mind itself is the reality. So a particular kind of what is called Charvaka school which considered the mind to be the reality. So that's what Anandagiri says. But today you might relate it to the psychologists. I want to do that today. That's not Anandagiri because he didn't know uh, New York in, in the 20th and 20th century. Especially 20th century uh, from the Second World War onwards with the influx of Freudian psychoanalysis here. It all became about the mind and not even the conscious mind, the unconscious mind. One of the Swamis, I think it was Ashokanandaji, who said, 1950s in, in San Francisco, he said, beware of them. They will uh, integrate you, disintegrate you and reintegrate you till you are a mass of patchwork. <laughs> so, um, overwhelmingly, the, the whole thing in our life, the all power was attributed to something called the subconscious, whose very existence now is taken, uh, is a big question mark which is being put now, by, by the latest advances in, in brain science. But anyway, it became very, very popular. And especially here, this was the hotbed, maybe even more so than Europe. 
I think the European psychoanalysts found, uh, I think Anna Freud was here, right? Freud's daughter, granddaughter, daughter, daughter. Uh, Karen Hornay was here. There's a, I saw the Karen Hornay Institute uh, one way. So everybody I, I gathered that in the 1950s and 60s, they had their own therapist. Like in India, you say, my guru, here you have to have your therapist. And he plays more or less the same role as the guru, <laughs> guru played. So you have to lie on a couch and tell all whatever comes to your mind and he will seriously take it down and then give you conclusions about your life. And will it help? Yes, eventually. How will you know you are cured? When the times, uh, your analyst says you are cured. <laughs> How do you know if you even have a problem? The fundamental thing is you have a problem. You say, no, I am alright. Then it's a very serious problem. <laughs> you, you, are, you are repressing the problem. <laughs> if you come with a problem, okay, you are admitting, admitting it. If you say you have no problem, you are perfectly alright, then you are in serious trouble because there is something which you are completely suppressing. That's a joke because um, Freud himself, it's, uh, he is un unfairly treated. He was actually, somebody asked him, that in your system, how do I know or how do we know if anybody is normal or not? Because you seem to say everything is abnormal. Whatever you do, you are abnormal. You are a patient then. Um, what is the definition of normality? And he gave a beautiful definition of normality. Freud. He said, the ability to love and to do your work. Very interesting. Can you effectively function? Just, just effectively. You don't have to be a super achiever. Just effectively get your professional and personal life in order. Just make do. One. And second, can you have nice relationships with people around you? Usually, in severe mental dysfunction, you will see both of these are immediately affected. Severe. Um, so, Freud gave that definition, which is fine, I think, which is a really good working, thing, um, practical definition of normality. Anyhow, so psychology became the big thing, Freudian psycho psychoanalysis, that uh, first of all, there is something wrong with you, and I will set it right. Uh, when, when is it, what is wrong? That only I know, you don't know. And when, I, when will I be cured? That only I know, you also will not know. Will you feel any different? No, you may not, but I will say you are cured. <laughs> and it will take years and thousands of dollars. So, what, hap uh, what happened finally, there was a Time Magazine story about why it fell out of favor in the 1980s onwards. Cover story. I said, one financial reason was there because I think the medical insurance and all, they would not cover psychoanalytic uh, sessions. They are expensive and not closed end. Where is the end to it? There is no end for three years, four years, five years, seven years. Um, and the other reason was why they, it, it got a lot of bad press, uh, like you know, things like implanted memories, people suddenly awakening, oh, I have been abused as a child, now I am going to sue my father and mother. The poor father and mother suddenly, <laughs> you, you get hit with a lawsuit. Uh, so, uh, and things like that. And then it actually investigated and found to be false. Not the fault of the person who is accusing also. It's something that is, was in, in, integrated into that person's memory by aggressive analysts. Mm. Who are forcing a solution upon you. Your problems are due to this kind of abuse perpetrated by that person. And this. So... <laughs> Actually, did it happen? You feel actually it happened. It, memory works like that. Memory works like that. Especially past events. If you are strongly told that sto story again and again, and you want to believe it, you will actually feel it happened to you. 
it will reconstruct the story. It totally may not have happened. And things which actually did happen, we may have completely forgotten also. So it's difficult to say. Uh, I'll come to you. I read a book called The Seven Deadly Sins of Memory. <laughs> like seven deadly sins? So seven deadly sins of memory. Some of them were sins of commission, some of omission. Which you cannot remember, some you remember wrongly. So, yeah. it was a book of a modern book of brain science, and they, it's all based on uh, neuroscience rather than Freudian science. And another reason why these things fell out of favor was the sudden growth in neuroscience. V. R. Ramachandran, who works in California, in one of his books, he shows some problems a person has. And the psychoanalyst gives a very deep prob uh, analysis about uh, what his mother was like, what his father, usually it's father and mother problem, everything. Mm -hmm. What his father was like, mother was like, and especially, and because of that, this person is having this kind of trauma. And the neuroscience explanation was very simple. There was a particular lesion or something which was treated, it became all right then. Mm -hmm. Now, which will you take? <laughs> which is the reason? Huh. So... Mana iti manavida, the knowers of the mind say mind is the dominating reality. Okay, two questions were there. If you still remember your questions. Yeah, Maharaj, so you once said that, first said about moving from subject to object is a problem. Yes. Not the problem, definition of libido. He gave a powerful definition of libido. We generally define libido as sexuality, but he said... He gave us such a broad definition. He said any movement from the subject to the object is libido. Which is a very Vedantic kind of understanding. That why you are moving outwards into an object. Yes. So I was, um, well, I was my psycho and psychologist friends that they tell me that the ultimate aim with analysis, if it's done correctly, is to put the patient into the trauma situation. So when you relive it, you separate from it. You see that it's happening in your consciousness and it's not entirely you. So you reframe memories. Yeah. So, there, so I mean, see, he is not criticizing it. Actually, he's not even speaking about psychologists here. If you go by Anandagiri, he's speaking about a particular school of materialists which says mind is real, is you. But anyway, I'm saying that about psychologists. But remember, the whole criticism here is not about the particular theories themselves. It says, whatever you are saying, it's an object, right? Because it's an object, it can't be the ultimate reality. So, the mind also is like that. It is true. I remember, I had a very interesting, the, before I became a monk, the student counsellor, she got to know uh, she, uh, um, that I'm going to become a monk. So, she called, him, called me in for a session. I was in, in college at that time. And it's very interesting. It's Freudian psychoanalysis. So she came to the conclusion that you're trying to, your father is religious, you're trying to please your father, that's why you want to become a monk. <laughs> well, then, then, then what? She says, now that you know this, it'll be okay. We'll, you will. Then I became a monk after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying it doesn't work. There might be some truth to it, but who cares? I'm glad I became a monk. <laughs> so, but anyway, mana iti mana veda. Um, there has been a move away, if you know modern psychology, away from psychoanalytic methods towards more, um, more towards the conscious part of the mind rather than the subconscious. So things like cognitive behavior therapy, which is where the agency of the patient, they don't even call you a patient, they call you a client. The agency of the client is given more importance 
than your subconscious. You are involved in your own uh, analysis and treatment. And reason is brought into play. The very idea of Freudian psychoanalysis is that reason is not important. The subconscious does not function on reason. But here reason is brought into play. And it's uh, your conscious uh, decisions are taken into account. And you, are, you, you work in your own um, treatment, let us say. So cognitive behavior therapy. And these sessions are actually paid for by um, medical insurance also. So they have become much more popular now. I know that some analysts used to use hypnotism. Towards your past and to the subconscious of the mind rather than the conscious mind. But what Gaudapada would say, he would take a much, he would step back further and take a larger view of the, he would see the bigger picture. Mind itself, subconscious mind, conscious mind, is it an object in your awareness? Yes. Fine. Then it's, it's not the reality. Something that comes and goes. Conscious mind, subconscious mind, do they have any effect on deep sleep? No. no. So they are also false then? Yes, of course. Consci mind and body, both are false in the sense of both are appearances in your awareness. That awareness is, you the awareness are the truth. So, so it's so life affirming, it's so strength giving. You are the truth. See, all these things are saying, it's not the world out there which has power over you. It's not a reality which dominates over you. You are the reality. It's not uh, some personal God sitting in the clouds who has control over you. You are the reality, not that one. It's not even the mind. It's not even the senses. Not even the world outside. Not astrology. Not Vastu. All of them in their respective spheres can be useful. You are the Lord of all of them. You are not a servant or a puppet in the hands of cosmic forces. No, they don't. They don't. They don't. It's for the first time in modern science and philosophy, they're beginning to, that hard problem of consciousness, they're beginning to think of consciousness as apart from uh, the physical world. Even here also, they have not yet understood consciousness as apart from mind. They keep thinking of mind and consciousness interchangeably. Yes, but and I, I know, you understand. Right. 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 Yes, and I'm saying that it's good you repeated it, and it has to be repeated n number of times. You know, procedures for better health, for physical health, mental health, social health. Even the ideologies I was sort of making fun of. Um, or even I would say astrology or something like that. All of them have their place. Remember, Gaudapada is not um, saying that they are wrong in the sense that they have no value at all. No, they have a relative value. He's again and again saying that. How? Remember, when we say something is false, did I not mention they are relatively true? 
So even so if something like a food in a dream satisfies your hunger in a dream, it has a relative value in that dream setting. In this world also, all of these things have their value. Don't mistake it. I will repeat it again and again. Don't suddenly think, this is the way to depression then. This is the understanding Advaita, misunderstanding Advaita can be very dangerous. It can lead to depression and uh, suicidal tendencies. You think nothing is real in the world then. No, no, no. At this level, everything continues to be exactly what it was. What Advaita is doing is pointing to a deeper reality. In contrast with which these things are false. In contrast with which higher truth, these are lower truths. But if this body is sick, I'm feeling pain and discomfort. Will this medicine prescribed by my GP work or not? Yes. In spite of what Gaudapada says, you are misunderstanding Gaudapada if you think that Gaudapada is saying your medicine will not work henceforth. No. He's pointing to something deeper than this. I agree with you 100%. Use everything that science has given you, religion has given you, the modern world has given you, including Freudian psychoanalysis, including astrology or whatever. Use all of that. Don't be a slave to them. Don't let them be the dominating ideology of your life. Let this be the truth. This is not another, another ideology. It is telling you that you are the truth. To put it in non-philosophical terms. It puts you in mastery of your life. This one. And then deploy all the knowledge. All the knowledge serves you. It, because if you take them as, as the truth. In all of them. In every case you will see. It makes you a slave. It makes you a helpless puppet. If you say I am ultimately dependent on medicine. Ultimately, not for the relief of, of the disease or this pain. Ultimately, that is what I'm dependent on. Ultimately, it's my therapist I'm dependent on. With, without that, I'm totally gone. No, then you are wrong. Yeah. Whereas this Vedanta, it roots you in reality. And then let the rest of the world take its course. If medicine, see, you're, you're suffering heavily. You're suffering deeply due to some kind of... Uh, um, maybe uh, illness or something. Doctors are working day and night to do something. Maybe now at one point you have to let go a little bit. Right? It will take some time. Maybe three months or six months later they'll come to a diagnosis and cure you and in between the body might suffer a lot. If you have this kind of a conviction and clarity, you have a lot of peace of mind. Lot of peace of mind. It could be physical problem, relationship problem, economic hardship, mental problem. The worst of all will be a mental problem because the mind is the closest to you. Right? Okay. I hope that is clear. There should not be any kind of confusion at this level. Vedanta being so powerful is also dangerous. These high level philosophies, uh, the more subtle they go and closer they come to come home to yourself, the more potential they have also of causing damage if mishandled. 
This empowers you. But you use all of them. One of our, I told you earlier also about psychology. In our order, we have two schools of thought about psychology in spiritual life. One school of thought is that, um, no, take your problems to God. Depend on God for your problems. Don't dabble in this. Even mental problems, take it to God. The other school of thought is, no. I, I know one of, one of our teachers was like that. He said, uh, of the second school of thought, he said, look, many people who come have psychological problems. They don't really have spiritual problems. So a good knowledge of psychology, the latest what psychology can offer us today, and which is a lot, it can really be helpful. It can really be soothing. You can solve a lot of people's problems. You can counsel them um, with the help of psychological understanding. So that's another school of thought. They say that if you have a stomach ache, you're going to a doctor, a physical doctor. So if somebody has a mental problem, why should they not consult a psychologist? Yeah. Your spirituality will work equally well for both of them. Both mental health and physical health are important to yes. follow the spiritual path. To, to be healthy is important in spiritual path. Yeah. As you said, it might make you more of a better aspirant, better seeker. So yes. So don't be misled about that. Then the next one is, another group considers the intellect, buddhiriti tadvidaha. Okay, what's going to come here? Mm, are different schools of thought. Three schools of thought. Or two schools at least. Um, you know, the... the the world of Indian philosophy is divided into several schools of thought. One of them is Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, but there are many others. So two are going to be mentioned here. One is a school of Buddhists. The Buddhists have fundamentally four schools. Ancient Buddhists, ancient Indian Buddhists have four schools. Um, the Sautrantika, Vaibhashika, Vijnanavada and Madhyamaka, Shunyavada. So, I will not talk about the differences, only one which is being mentioned here, Buddhiriti Chatadvidaha. This is a school of Buddhists, they are called the Vigyanavadis. What they say is the ultimate reality are flashes of Vigyana. Vigyana is a mix of consciousness and intellect, understanding awareness and not constant, flashes, a series of quick flashes. And, he said, and they say that if you look inside, if you actually meditate, that's what you'll ex see your experience as, as a stream of flashes of awareness. It's exactly what William James came to after, Hume, David Hume, when he said, when I contemplate inside, I found, find a series of perceptions, perceptions, feelings, thoughts, memories, in one continuous series. Other than this, I do not find any self, he said. William James called it, I think he's the one who invented stream of consciousness, the term. This is what these thousands of years before that, I mean, um, nearly 2000, more than 2000 years ago, within a couple of centuries of the Buddha, this school had come up. It's called Vigyanavada. Um, Vasubandhu and others, were, they were great teachers of this school. Vigyanavada. They say consciousness is the ultimate reality. So then that's what Gaudapada is saying. No. According to them, consciousness is not one constant consciousness. It's a 
like a flashing strobe light, a continuous series of flashes. Why would they say that? They say that if you actually look inside, introspect, that's what you'll see is happening. What's going on there? Yeah, the we can we can close that door. Let them let them come. Uh, yeah, let's pull the door close. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. If you introspect inside, you will see that's what's happening. A, a series of flashes of awareness. Another reason why they say these are uh, flashes of awareness is um, not one constant thing, is because uh, the Buddhist idea of uh, reality, they define reality as causal efficacy. You follow this carefully. Causal. What happened? That's it. Leave it. Leave it alone. Let's let's just finish. It's not such a big problem. They have left. It's the workers. They have left. Mm. Causal efficacy is the definition of reality. What is causal efficacy? Um, a cause will produce an effect. Reality is something that has an effect on other things. Example: You see water. How do you know it's real water or a mirage? You go and drink that water. If it's wet and it satisfies your thirst, then it's real water. So it has a causal effect. It does what it's supposed to do. If, it is, if it's causally efficacious, if it produces the effect, then it's real. It's a pragmatic definition of reality. If, I mean, let's put it in simple words. If it works, it's real. But if you go close enough and examine it, and it turns around to be out to be shimmering air in a desert, you call it, oh, it's a mirage, it's not real water. It looks like water, it's not real water. Why? It doesn't work like water. It looks like water, but it doesn't walk like water, talk like water. <laughs> so it's not water. Uh, so causal efficacy is the test of reality. Vedanta does not agree. Gaudapada would not agree. Why not? You know what Gaudapada would say? Remember his dream uh, thing? He will say that, in my dream... I don't know I'm dreaming. I see that, oh, there's water. Wait, let me test it. My Buddhist teacher told me that if it uh, feels wet and if it satisfies your thirst, then it's water. I go there and true, uh, true enough, it feels wet. And I drink it. And it works. It satisfies my thirst. So, it, uh, uh, isn't it uh, real? So yes, it's real by the test su suggested by my Buddhist teacher. And the next moment I wake up and see the whole thing was a dream. So, causal efficacy is not the test of reality. In a dream, thing could be causally efficacious. In one level of reality, things could be causally efficacious. And the next level, it could all be cancelled and shown to be not real. You understand? But let's go back to the Buddhist. Why would they say consciousness is momentary? Why would they say there are flashes of consciousness? Why not one constant consciousness? Because... If causal efficacy is the sign of reality, something has to be causally efficacious. 
then to be causally efficacious, a cause has to produce an effect. For a cause to produce an effect, the cause must change. There must be a change, otherwise nothing can happen. To something, for something to happen, there must be a change. Now, when should the change happen? At every point of time. Because if at any point of time there is no change, you, cannot, you, can, you have to say that it is not producing anything. Causally efficacious. If it has to be causally efficacious at every moment, it must be changing, <coughs> changing at every moment. Do you follow this? It's a simple um, uh, reasoning. It must be changing at every moment. If it is changing at every moment, it is momentary. In Sanskrit, kshanikam, momentary. So the Buddhist says, not only are things impermanent, but things are also momentary. They don't, it's not that it is created, will last a long period of time, relatively stable, and then will disintegrate. No, it is not relatively stable. It is disappearing moment to moment to moment. One person went to a Buddhist teacher to, for clarification on this. A Tibetan teacher, very nice conversation. He says, teacher, I understand that things change and things are impermanent. I know I was born, this body was born, one day it will die. And also in this life also things change. But why do you say it's momentary? That I don't understand. Is everything changing moment to moment? And the teacher said, remember when you came to become a, a lama, a monk, you were a teenager. Now you're 50 years old. Quite some 40 years have passed or 35 years have passed. And how much you have changed? Oh, yes, yes, physically I've changed so much. Right? You have changed, do you agree? Yes, I, I agree. Over 35 years, yes, I agree. And all that change, did it happen at once? No. no. It happened, or did it happen in installments? No. It happened continuously over time. That's what's basically meant by momentariness. If you dig into that continuous change, you will get end up with momentariness. And a lot of modern science agrees with that. But anyway, the point here is, the Buddhist school says, it is flashes of consciousness. You know what Advaita would say to that? Later on, Gaudapada will deal with this particular school, because it's pretty close to Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. So he'll deal more carefully with this school. But basically what Advaita would say to that is, actually what you're doing is, you're not distinguishing between the momentary flashes of intellect, the working of the mind, and the constant consciousness behind it. So it seems to be the consciousness is flick, flickering in and out. It's the antakkarana, the inner instrument, the intellect, which is changing fast. And that's the nature of the inner instrument, vrittis, modifications, it changes fast. But the consciousness behind it is not changing. So that's what Vedanta would say. But they take the two together. They call it, like William James said, a stream of consciousness. According to Vedanta, it would be a stream in consciousness. But consciousness itself is not a stream. It doesn't flow. It shines and is, uh, is that it, it, it just is. Then the next one, Chittamiti, Chittavida. Some consider memory to be real. This is actually where the Freudian psychoanalyst would fit in absolutely. So our memory, our subconscious, our accumulated life story, maybe few past lifetimes, that is what is real. Then one more school of Indian philosophy comes next. Dharma, dharma, chatadvidaha. Merit and demerit. There is a school of philosophy called Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa. 
Among the Hindu schools, traditionally there are six schools. Traditionally means nowadays the way we see Hinduism. So six schools of, of, of Hindu philosophy. Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, Purva Mimamsa and Uttara Mimamsa more popularly known as Vedanta, this one. So this one is the, and this one is also one of the schools of many schools of Vedanta. But the other five schools, among them one school is called Purva Mimamsa. And this is that school he is referring to. What do they consider to be real? Ultimately at the root of the universe is our karma. Is all that we sentient beings have done. And that's what is giving us this, these life experiences. Good karma, what is the law of karma? Good karma, which is dharma. Dharma generates merit, punya. In Sanskrit, punya, merit. And merit translates into pleasurable experiences, sukha. So all the pleasurable experiences you are having in life. Um, Vedanta class, I don't know, is pleasurable or <laughs> painful experience, depending on our karma. So that is because of merit. And if I intentionally do things which I know to be wrong, adharma, intentionally done wrong acts, why would anybody do intentionally wrong acts knowing that they will lead to unpleasant circumstances? Because um, we are overwhelmed by either temptation or fear. Any time that we consciously do something wrong, you'll see there's either temptation or fear at the, at the back of it. I can't control myself or I'm forced into it by some kind of terror or anxiety. So fear or temptation. So adharma leads to demerit, which is in Sanskrit called papa. And that demerit produces <coughs> unpleasant experiences in life. Unpleasant. Any kind of relationship, economic, physical, mental, unpleasant experiences in life. That is called Dukkha. So our Sukha and Dukkha are the result of our own accumulated merits and demerits. What we have done in past lives. Papa and Punya. And those are the results of the actions we have performed. Deliberately done good actions, deliberately done bad actions. So this is the philosophy of the Purva Mimamsaka. They have a term for this accumulated merit, their own technical term. They call it Adrishta. Adrishta. And that determines our life. So this is their fundamental philosophy. And from this flows that basically what is important is not all your philosophy or your yoga and meditation, all of that. Good, you may do it. They'll say it's cute. <laughs> but, but what really matters is your action in this life. And especially Vedic ritualistic action from which we get a cut. They get a commission out of it. Huh? Um, thoughts will have, ultimately they say actions are most important. But thoughts contribute to that. There's mental action also, yes. But, but they are more interested in a particular kind of action, which is a religious action, which is a ritualistic religious action sanctioned by the Vedas, from which they get a commission out of it, the priests. So there's money involved there. Anyhow, I'm being unfair to them. But their idea is, this is reality. All of this Gaudapada rejects mercilessly. Then comes next one. Pancha vingshaka mityeke Pancha vingshaka ityeke Shada vingsha iti chapare Shada vingsha iti chapare 
एकत्रिंशक इत्याहो एकत्रिंशक इत्याहो अनंत इति चापरे अनंत इति चापरे मेनी ऑफ द एंशियंट इंडियन फिलोसोफर्स वेर ग्रेट क्लासिफायर्स होल ऑफ द यूनिवर्स दे विल रिड्यूस इन टू ट्वेंटी थ्री कैटेगरीज और सम से ट्वेंटी फाइव कैटेगरीज सम से थर्टी वन एंड सो ऑन वी डू इट टू रिमेंबर आवर केमिस्ट्री क्लास पीरियडिक टेबल सो ही सेज सम फिलोसफर्स बाय माई काउंटिंग दिस इज द ट्वेंटी फिफ्थ वन पंचविंग शकर ट्वेंटी फाइव कैटेगरीज आर देयर वॉट आर द ट्वेंटी फाइव कैटेगरीज सो हु इज दिस फिलोसफर इट्स अ फेमस स्कूल ऑफ सांख्य द सांख्य फिलोसफी द मास्टर ऑफ सांख्य फिलोसफी वॉज कपिल कपिल ऋषि कपिल मुनि सो इन बेंगाल at the confluence of the ganga and the bay of bengal there is a kapila um, ashram or that that's the place where kapila is generally worshiped or something so he is the founder of the sankhya philosophy according to them ha huh? ganga sagar yes according to them 25 fundamental realities the whole universe can be classified into 25 realities what are these 25 realities fundamentally consciousness and non conscious two realities consciousness purusha pure awareness which you are and non conscious material uh, nature called prakriti prakriti is the non conscious reality this entire universe pretty scientific that way i mean what david chamas is proposing as a solution to the hard problem he call, is calling it panpsychism is somewhat pretty close to the sankhyan formulation he doesn't know it but it's very close to what kapila formulated um, i think 4 or 5000 years ago so material nature the universe called prakriti prakriti is the source of the material universe and the material universe itself is divided according to them into 23 categories what are these categories first remember it's subjective it starts from from inside out so the first emanation is intelligence mahat the second one is mind manas third one is ahankara ego or third second one is ego and third one is uh, mind and then comes the five elements space and fire air and fire and water and earth then comes the experiences we get from these five elements that is form and sound and uh, and all of that and the sense organs the five sense organs by which we experience it and the five organs of action karmendriya how many does that make uh it, it makes 23 yes to so 23 products of nature plus nature 24 plus consciousness 25 categories so you say so he has talked about consciousness godapada should be happy no 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 he is saying consciousness is one reality and all the other objects are also equally real two kinds of reality conscious reality non conscious reality and he stops there he does not come into a unity or non duality it's like saying yeah snake and rope so there are two realities one is a snake reality one is a rope reality no 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 it's a rope which is appearing as the snake there is no snake apart from the rope but he says that no there is a nature physical nature and there is a conscious uh, reality that is 25 those who say 25 gorapada does not go into all these details he just says there are some who say nature has 25 aspects there are some who say 26 so this is the yoga philosophy which adds one more category to it 
What is that? God. Ishwara. Yoga philosophy of Patanjali. Then there is another one which says, no, no, there are 31 categories. So this is the uh, Pashupata, the worshippers of Shiva, which to the 25 categories of Patanjali, they add attachment, Raga, which also includes Dvesha, repulsion. Then Avidya, ignorance, Niyati, fate, Kala, Kala, time, and Maya. So five more to the 26, uh, to the 26. So you get how many? 31. This, this is the Pashupata school. Anyhow, Gaurapada has a simple short method of unceremonious method of dealing with them. They are all objective realities. Uh, so dismissed. Then 27. Lokan loka vida praho. Lokan loka vida praho. Ashrama iti tadvidaha. Ashrama iti tadvidaha. Stripung, stripung napun sakam laingaha. Stripung napun sakam laingaha. Para paramathapare. Para paramathapare. So these are philosophers from 29 to 32. We've already reached 32 philosophical. It would have been a multi-volume textbook to explain all of this. And Gaurapada just dismisses them in a few verses. So 29th is Loka, Loka Veda. Loka literally means the world. But the 14 worlds we have already seen. It's not that. Here, according to an Anandagiri, it means the pleasures to be derived from the, these worlds. So there are people who consider the, you might call them sort of cosmic hedonists. What kind of fun or parties are going on in different layers of the cosmos? And we want all of that. So that becomes the purpose of existence. Growing from world to world to world. And it's not so uh, odd either. I've heard of uh, sects of religions which say that after death you get your own planet. And then you will go there. And all these are the fun that you're going to have in that planet. So basically people like this. Who say there are particular pleasures to be had in different worlds. And that's the point of, of existence. Then... There is another one, Ashramaiti Tadvidaha. This requires a little explanation. You have to imagine the Hindu society in India at that time, which was dominated, the structure of society was a rigid system of what called Varnashrama. The four castes and their innumerable sub-castes, the Brahmins, the priests and the scholars were the highest. Then the Kshatriyas, the administrators, warriors, next. Then the, the Vaishya, the traders, um, the, the third caste, and then the shudras, the laborers, workers, the masses of people, four castes, and there are innumerable subcastes and divisions among them, whose effects we still see in India today. I mean, Indians know by knowing, in many cases, just by knowing the name and the title, we can know sort of the background of the person. And it was much more rigid and um, tightly organized in those days. So there were people who considered, these are the castes, and then not only is your life divided into castes, which determines your privileges in the entire structure, who is above you, who is below you, your duties, what you're going to do in life. Not only that, it also, there was the system of, of uh, ashrama, which means stages of life. 
So there is the brahmacharya, student stage. Then there is the grihastha, householder stage. Then there is the vanaprastha, the retired stage. And then the sannyasa, when you become, when you leave everything and go off in your spiritual quest by yourself, you become a, a monk, a renunciant. Four stages of life and four general castes, but with a lot of subcastes. So a complex but rigid social structure. And some people, there are many who consider this to be the most paramount thing. And we know, even in India today, till now you can see the effects of that, the whole problem of caste. Casteism, the terrible uh, consequences which you can see. And continuous struggle and strife and fighting going on because of that. And so there were people who made it their whole, that became the reality for people. That is the social, most important social reality. Gaudapada, of course, is having none of it. <coughs> then next, Laingaha. Uh, literally, it means the experts on gender. If you see the commentator, sub-commentator, he says these are grammarians who are continuously concerned with words and gender and usage. So here, literally, he says female, male and neuter. These are the obsessions of those obsessed with gender. But... He said this means the grammarians, the whole school of grammarians. But I was thinking it's much more appropriate to apply it to New York today. <laughs> you know, legally in New York, legally in New York State, we have 31 genders. 31. Some of you look confused. Google it. You will be interested. 31 genders are there, officially recognized. So I think... Gaurapada is speaking about us here, about 21st century Manhattan. So it's sort of wildly run out of control. Recently there was a big debate on the bathroom issue. On which, so I'm not going to talk about it because I know people can evoke strong emotions. But if it evokes strong emotions, you, then you, then you are this, this school of thought. It's not such an ancient school of thought as we think. It's very much current. The philosopher Zizek, whom we, the talk I attended, he mentioned it. He said, you all in uh, New York today, your obsession with, with gender, uh, he is a Marxist. So he says, look, the big corporations don't, don't care. Have 30 bathrooms in a row. They'll be happy. They'll invest in bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> they don't care. So, <laughs> um, I think it did not go down well with many of the young people there because that's a hot issue for many people. I, I went to Columbia University to meet a professor and... Then I went to the washroom and then they give you a choice. The washrooms are gender neutral. Please pick your most suitable washroom. <laughs> I was <laughs> yes. And the people there were like, and they, they, you know, like, here, there's a gender neutral bathroom and here is a gender neutral person. Look, <laughs> can't be a man, woman, what, what particular gender are you? You don't know. <laughs> okay. But here he means grammarians. But whatever it is, whether it's gender, obsession with gender, obsession with grammar, Gaurapada has one point. Is it an object to your awareness? Yes. What gender are you when you are in deep sleep? Nothing. <laughs> and then there are some who say, para param. Para param para para param athapare. There are another who, who say, the higher Brahman and the lower Brahman. This is pretty close to Vedanta. Many Vedantins think this way. What is the higher Brahman? The causal Brahman and the effect Brahman. Karya Brahman, Karana Brahma. Causal Brahman is Saguna Brahman. God. 
the creator of the universe. So creator, preserver and destroyer of the universe, the God of religion and the God which is manifested as this universe. These two are the reality. What would Gaudapada say? No. According to Gaudapada, in, in his structure, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, which is the causal one? Deep sleep. Pragya Ishwara is the causal one. Which is the effect? What is the product? Waking and dreaming. The subtle product is dreaming. The, the gross product is waking. Stula, sukshma, karana. The Sanskrit word is important. Stula, gross. Sukshma, subtle. Karana, causal. These three are... Somebody, if somebody says, this is the reality. And Gaudapada will say, precisely this is not the reality. These three appear and disappear in one reality, which is Turiyam, which is neither cause nor effect. In Sanskrit, Karya Karana Vilakshana Brahma. Beyond cause and effect, the a-causal reality. That's what Gaudapada is speaking about. And here precisely is what he is not speaking about, the causal reality. So many Vedanta schools, they speak about this. They speak about a causal Brahman and the effect Brahman. So this world is Brahman. In a sense, yes, it is Brahman. And the source of this world, God, is Brahman. Yes, it is Brahman. Ah, so this is the reality? No. The reality is beyond both of them. But it appears as cause and effect. So this is also rejected. Though it's pretty close to Vedanta. If you say waking, dreaming, deep sleep, this is the reality, right? No. The fourth is the reality. These three are appearances. Then the last one, let's just read and then stop. You've gone over time. Srishti Riti Srishti Vido Laya Iti Chatadvidaha Stiti Riti Stiti Vidaha Stiti Vidaha Sarve Cheha Tu Sarvada Sarve Cheha Tu Sarvada Here is the point. People conversant with creation call creation to be the reality. So Big Bang specialists. I was listening to a conference. I said that the whole thing about cosmologists. What was the Big Bang? And what banged? <laughs> what is the one which banged? So Big Bang. So they, they, these are exactly the people he's talking about. Then Layaiti Tadvidaha. The knowers of dissolution call it dissolution. The ultimate destruction of the universe. The knowers of subsistence. How the universe is persisting right now. So a cosmologist for example. That is the highest thing. Stiti iti, stiti vidahan, the cosmologists. What is Gaudapada's point? Sarve chaihatu sarvada. All these ideas are forever imagined on the self. On you, the consciousness, all these appear, disappear. This is the conclusion. So Gaudapada has done like what you call in PhD, literature survey. In 28 verses, very quickly, he has taken a survey of all the schools of thought which were available to him at that time. 28 verses. We'll stop here. Now the subject will back, come back to um, pure consciousness and the falsity of the world. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu